This is the Fuente Podcast. Episode two. Hope everybody enjoyed episode one. Episode one, we talked about creation, the three forms of chaos, how God overcame all of them, and what things were created on what days. Today, we're going to go into the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, um, and maybe talk a little bit about uh, the Garden of Eden and what it was exactly. Uh, Okay, so technically... Last time we went into chapter two a little bit, I'll go ahead and start with uh, chapter two from verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, if you remember last time, we talked about what rest meant. It was nuach. And it means, that's the Hebrew word, and it means um, to rule and reign. So think of it less like God's taking a nap and more like God has put everything in order. And now he's sitting on his throne in the palace, the temple that he's created, and he's ready to rule and reign. Okay, but this is interesting. A lot of scholars believe that um, starting with verse 4, we have um, another creation account that an editor put together with this one during the Babylonian exile. And we'll go into why people think that it's from um, a different tradition um, as we hit those issues. Uh, For now, I'm just going to start reading. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So right there, you see what looks like Um, an introduction. And if you remember the verse right before this, it sounded like a conclusion. So um, a lot of scholars are like, oh, that's textually interesting. It looks like we have two creation stories that are put together. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. The streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So you have a different chronology here. If you are reading attentively uh, in the first creation story, you have plants being created on the third day, man being created chronologically later on the sixth day. Um, and people, they try to force so much importance into making sure that they know what happened on what day and this and that. And they, they totally miss and, you know, potentially that might've happened, whatever. We don't know. <laughs> um, I would say the modern science suggests otherwise, but looking at those six days and with the seventh day, the, theolo- the whole theological point of, of writing the story in that way was to emphasize that the whole cosmos is a temple. And in your ancient ideology, a temple was the place where divinity met humanity. And so I think it's a real waste of energy to be reading Genesis 1 and then reading Genesis 2 where the plants don't exist yet and God's making man and go, oh, no, it's contradicting Genesis 1. The whole Bible's full of lies. Like, Uh, No, I think we just have a genre mishap here. Okay. The Bible's not a scientific textbook, and it's okay that 
the chronology of plants and humans is different in Genesis 1 than in Genesis 2. Maybe the editor's trying to make a theological point. Maybe the editor's trying to say that humanity's the last created and the first created. The first and the last. In other words, the most important part of creation. We need to focus more on things like that and less on trying to jam these ideas together in a way that doesn't make any sense. God is intelligent, and he picked people who are intelligent to write this Bible for us. And if we assume that they're intelligent and they're not writing stupid things that are self-contradictory, there's a lot of beauty and depth and meaning in there. And we need to remember, too, that ancient people, they thought teleologically. They didn't think cosmologically like we do. Um, So he puts, uh, God formed a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I'm going to pause right here. If you look at the other Mesopotamian creation myths, um, I believe in the Babylonian one, the gods want slaves. And in order to get slaves, they decide to make humans. Um, What they do is they get the dirt and they get the blood of a demon and then they blow on it and it makes these slave humans. (coughs) Compare that to back in Genesis 1. What's the purpose for God creating humans? He's creating them so that they can be his image bearers in the world, so they can be rulers on his behalf. The Bible's theological story here is very, very empowering compared to all of the, the stories and narratives of the world around them. We need to listen to what the Bible is actually saying. It's telling us that humans are extremely important to the created order, number one. And then number two, we're made to be rulers on God's behalf, bringing order to chaos. We're not supposed to be slaves like the... Um, in a demeaning way. We should be servants of God, but um, different from the way that it worked in the Mesopotamian world. Okay. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So when I uh, was growing up as a fundamentalist, I always kind of assumed that the entire planet was covered in garden. Like the Garden of Eden was the whole earth or something. But look here, it says, the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Um, And this is a lot like that theme of God providing food that we saw in the third day of Genesis 1. God's a provider, okay? He defeats the, the chaotic wasteland by providing food in it. Um, thematically, you can see how this would be related to manna later on. Um, providing food also appears in the acts of Jesus and his feeding of the 5,000 and then his feeding of the 4,000. Okay. Um, something else to note here is that he puts man in this garden. It's almost like he's planting man in the garden. And there's going to be this theme throughout the Bible of this importance with trees Pay attention to trees as you're reading your Bibles. You'll see um, the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil. Uh, You'll see the tree of life. You see the burning bush. 
which was etz in Hebrew. It's like wood. Be paying attention to things that are made out of wood, like the um, Ark of the Covenant and the large parts of the temple that are made of wood. Um, Jesus is even sacrificed on a cross. And also be paying attention to mountains because Eden was this, this idyllic place where divinity met humanity that was on a mountain where there were trees. Um, and so you see the, the burning bushes on Mount Sinai and you see um, Jesus is, is um, he's crucified on a hill. <laughs> the um, biblical writers, they record these details because they want us to tune into them and see these patterns and go, huh, that seems important. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food in the middle of the garden, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right in the middle of the garden. Okay. Here's an excerpt from Walton. Uh, tree of life. Proverbs 3, 16 through 18. The tree of life offers an extension of life, which suggests rejuvenating qualities. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's a rejuvenating plant that grows out of the bottom of the cosmic river. In the story of Adapa, the heroes offered food by the god Anu that is eventually identified as food of life and water of life. He refuses to partake, having been told it was food of death. Thus, humankind is prevented from joining the gods in immortality. In Egyptian literature, Amun-Re is the god who created the tree of life, but no further information is given. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing is known of this tree from any of the traditions of the ancient Near East. In the Gilgamesh epic, the primitive Enkidu becomes wise, possessing reason, not by eating the fruit of the tree, but by engaging in sexual intercourse with a prostitute who is sent to entice and capture him. Um, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, <coughs> I'm no longer reading from Walton. Epic of Gilgamesh, he's trying to get um, immortality, and he finds a Noah-type figure who's, who lived through this ancient flood, and the Noah figure tells him how to become immortal like him, and the way to do it is you get this plant that grows at the bottom of the ocean. Gilgamesh goes down there and gets it and brings it back up, but a serpent ends up eating this plant. And you can see... A lot of these um, themes from this story are taken by the biblical writers and um, put under their Jewish theology to emphasize different things and make theological statements. Okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God put uh, the man and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay. These rivers, um, two, two of them, their locations are known. Let's see. Let's see what Walton has to say. 
Most scholars would place Eden in or near the northern end of the Persian Gulf based on the locations of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The distinction in the east merely indicates Mesopotamia and is typically and is typical of primordial narratives. The flow of the rivers and the uncertainty of the location of the Bashan and Gihon um, has caused some to look near the source of the Tigris and Euphrates, and some scholars have identified two other major rivers in that area that might qualify. In such a mountainous region, the garden would be in an elevated valley, though for some the imagery of a well-watered garden where humans do no work and life springs up without cultivation is more suited to the marshy areas around the Persian Gulf. Um, so I've gone back and forth about whether there was a historical Eden and, and struggled with this topic a lot. Um, if you want really good resources on this, I would look up Biologos. They have a good podcast on whether there's a historical Adam. And then also on YouTube, there's um, a YouTuber who's named Inspiring Philosophy. And he does the most persuasive argument for a historical Adam and Eve that I've ever seen before. And he has a, um, he has an area that he believes is the location of the garden of Eden. Uh, personally, I've looked at the genetics of humans and it doesn't appear that humans ever came from only two, one, like one particular couple. Like looking at our genetics, we can tell that the population of humans, I believe never went under around 10,000. The theological point of all of this, though, um, is like these giant rivers that all came from this mountain garden. And that's a very, very common motif in Mesopotamian literature. Um, I would suggest here the book called Unseen Realm by the scholar Dr. Michael Heiser. He goes into this common motif um, and it pops up in a lot of the Ugarit literature. Ugarit is an a, a ancient city that's found in modern Syria, north of Israel. Um, and in the 1920s, it was excavated. They found over 14,000 clay tablets that have like um, the, the ball cycle and all these other ancient Mesopotamian pieces of literature that let us look deep down into the, the heart and the themes and praxis and beliefs of this ancient civilization that was very, very close to Israel's. Um, and Israel borrows a lot of these ideas and, and transforms them and mutates them into its own thing, making its own theological statements. And when you understand like the cultural context of these stories, it really is able to highlight the things that were important to the, the Hebrew um, author and what he would be highlighting with by pointing out these rivers and all these glowing stones is the 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 rare jewels were always seen as being a part of the just this divine realm and divine beings are often described as being shining and and if like if you read revelation it talks about you know how he looked like he had sapphire and onyx and all these these gemstones on him, or even in Isaiah, whenever there's a theophany and there's a throne room scene where the prophet goes before all these divine beings, all these gemstones are always mentioned. Gemstones and, and shining metals, they were associated with celest the celestial realm. Um, and so the, the Hebrew author here is, is talking about there's all these gemstones in this location. There's all these rivers coming from it, and it's a garden. And anyone who's hearing all this would be thinking, 
Oh, this sounds just like the place where Baal and the divine council of El all met, the 70 gods. They met on their, their, um, they, <coughs> they met on their mountain and, and conducted uh, court. So it's this place where divinity meets humanity. That's what's being highlighted here. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, is God wanting man to not know the difference between good and evil? No, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think what's going on with this is mankind is being presented with a choice. We can try to define good and evil for ourselves, or we can listen to what God is saying is good and evil. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Naming somebody was a way of putting like authority over them in some way. And uh, allowing, by allowing man to name the animals, God is allowing man to bring function and purpose to his creation. That he's allowing humans to live out what it means to be an imager of God by, by naming these creatures. Um, and what's an interesting bit of trivia here, if there's only one character in the Bible that ever names God, and that is um, Hagar, the Gentile um, slave of Abraham, who is a woman. <laughs> and so it's... Totally fascinating. You could write a whole dissertation just on that. She she calls God the one who sees me because she's in distress and God meets her in her needs. Um, back here, though, he's naming the animals. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for uh, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs or his side. It could also be his side. It's the same word in Hebrew. And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. Um, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Um, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Um, I remember before getting married and meeting Hillary, like spending my whole youth just being so lovesick and so wanting of like romantic love and um, living alone too. You've you're so much more emotionally. Um, vulnerable and uh, your mental health is so much more vulnerable. Um, like for example, if, if I'd have been living alone when this coronavirus hit, I probably would have been so much more paranoid. And I remember before um, living with Hillary, I used to just be paranoid of random things a lot of the time. And it living with somebody else, it really knocks the edge off of the fears of life. Um, God made us for community and I think um, even if you aren't meeting up with a significant other, um, you need to spend time in community with friends at least. And just being around friends 
helps to put the fears of life in perspective. Um, God made us to work with each other and also to be his imagers. Um, here's a little excerpt from Walton on, on nakedness. Naked. In Genesis, the nakedness of the human does not appear to be a negative comment, though it is contrasted through wordplay to the craftiness of the serpent in the next verse. So it may refer to a relative naivety. In contrast, ancient Near Eastern texts indicate that the prim primeval nakedness of people is a sign of a primitive, uncivilized condition. When Enkidu is civilized in the Gilgamesh epic, he is clothed by the woman who civilizes him. The Sumerian text, You and Wheat, opens with a description of primeval humans who are clearly primitive, and the text apparently considers that a negative. In this way, there are similarities in how Genesis and the Mesopotamian texts uh, describe early humankind, but there's a contrasting assessment of how their condition should be interpreted. Um, and here's an excerpt from Walton on names. Dame, names were not given randomly in the ancient world. A name may identify the essential nature of the creature, so that giving a name may be an act of assigning the function that creature will have. In Mesopotamia, the assigning of function is referred to as the decreeing of destiny. Decreeing destiny by giving a name is an act of authority. In the ancient world, when a king conquered another country, the king he put on the throne was given a new name. So if you've read Daniel and you remember everyone being renamed, that was a power play. And if you remember in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus approaches the demon-possessed man and the demon-possessed man goes, I know who you are, the son of God, uh, Jesus or whatever. The demon's trying to get authority over Jesus by saying his name, just like Nebuchadnezzar's getting authority over Daniel saying his name. Okay, I'm going to continue. In other cases, the giving of a name is an act of discernment in which the name is determined by the circumstances. In either case, Adam's naming of the animals is his first step in subduing and ruling. He is fulfilling the role that he had by virtue of being in God's image. But it also leads him to realize that among the animals, there's no social equal to share in his function and place. And here's a note on the rib. In Genesis, the woman was built from the side of the man. The Hebrew word is usually architectural and is used anatomically only here in the Old Testament. In Akkadian, the cognate term, that means a term that sounds the same, and so it usually means the same thing in another language, or it does mean the same thing in another language. This would be like um, universo in Spanish and Italian being universe in English. Okay, the cognate term in Akkadian, cella, is also both architectural and anatomical. Its anatomical uses generally refer not to uh, just to bone, but to the bones and flesh. Okay. Um, the text establishes a flesh line, which is stronger than a bloodline. It causes the man to seek her out. Woman is recognized as being of the same essence as man and therefore of serving as his allies in sacred space. Sacred space is whenever humans are in contact with an area that's, that has divinity. So that would be like this garden. It's this uh, place for the divine council and Yahweh meet. Um, and actually, speaking of strong spiritual beings, the divine council, um, there was a throne guardian. And we have pictures of throne guardians from the time of Isaiah that are in clay seals. And they were depicted as what kind of animal? Serpents. 
Huh, that's interesting, seeing as how next we're going to be heading into Genesis 3. We'll be talking about serpents, why the adversary in Genesis would be portrayed as a, as a serpent, why Adam and Eve wouldn't be shocked at the fact that there's a talking snake. Huh, maybe there's more going on here. We'll talk about a, tri a triple entendre that Michael Heiser pointed out in the word Nahash. Nahash, sorry, that's a chet there. Um, so it should be a pretty good episode. All right. Thank you guys for listening. I'll see you next time.